0: How does power operate? Who is really in charge of this? And what are they intending to do? Then we can more accurately understand where we are and where we're going.
1: Welcome to the Independent Riot Podcast. Your home for free thinkers, independent believers, and radicals questioning the status quo. Our goal is to provide you entertaining, intelligent discussion around all of life's most pressing questions without hidden agendas or ulterior motives. So if you're too good for the bad, too bad for the good, and sick of people trying to convince you to join their preferred pyramid scheme this week, you've found your home. Now here's your host, Jim Duncan.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Independent Riot. I am extremely excited about today's guest. If you do not know who James Corbett is, you should. He's kind of the godfather of alternative theories for geopolitics and world history on the Internet. And if you have uh, been kind of conditioned to be um, reluctant to listen to quote unquote conspiracy theories, I challenge you to to listen to um, this conversation with James and not find him to be an extremely rational, articulate, logical, fact-based person. Now, um, in this conversation, I basically had James on to um, give us his take of what is going on in the world. And, um, it's a fascinating discussion. We get into, um, everything from, uh, the reality of conspiracy theories versus sort of the cartoon comic book oversimplified version of them to, um, potential, uh, solutions to what is going on in the world, including he gets uh, pretty in depth in explaining the concept of the, uh, political philosophy of anarchism. And, um, so I highly encourage you to listen to this conversation with an open mind. And also though, either before or after go to the Corbett Report.com. That's where all of James's work is now, because although at one point he had amassed over 90 million views on youtube last year they had decided that he was too dangerous to uh, continue to have on the platform and have given him a lifetime ban so Uh, I encourage you to go to the Corbett report and, uh, dot com and check out all of his work from his questions for Corbett series to his solution watch series, which is about what you as an individual can do to make things better to, um, especially his documentary section where he does, uh, Full length, often two hour documentaries that are such high quality. They're probably on level with like a Ken Burns type style, uh, documentary that, but all of his are dealing with, um, Alternative theories of alternative, meaning alternative to what is typically discussed about what happened with 9-11 to uh, big oil's influence in the world to things like even um, – the creation of the federal reserve and uh, my personal favorite uh, world war one and what caused it. And um, so I highly encourage you to go to the Corbett report. After you listen to this episode with James, um, I, I do uh, want to say that I accidentally cut off the first few minutes of James talking. Cause I'm kind of an idiot and did not hit the record button when I should have, but um, this conversation Starts off with James answering my question of how he ended up in Japan, living in Japan. And um, then we go further into the other subjects, that the more macro subjects that uh, I just mentioned. So without further ado, um, here is the uh, brilliant, articulate truth seeker himself, James Corbett.
0: And for a year to teach English, earn a bit of money and Just waste another year before I figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And of course, one year turns into two, turns into five, turns into 10, turns into 17 now, 18. Are we into 18 now? Anyway, a long time. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, at the point at which you start uh, start losing count is the point. (laughs) It doesn't really matter anymore, does it? So most of my adult (laughs) life I've spent in Japan. And it was uh, about my third year here in Japan that I... Had a very mundane, prosaic experience. Moved into a new apartment. The apartment came with an internet connection. It was the first time since I moved out of my parents' house that I had internet in my home. I wasn't going to uh, 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 an internet cafe to download emails or whatever. So I had the, the time and the space and the luxury to just surf online and look at the sorts of things that I was interested in. I was interested in politics. So I started looking at documentaries and things on Google video, if you remember that, and mm. YouTube and places like that, that were yeah. brand new to me because this was 2006 we're talking about here. So um, it was it was an exciting time. And that was how I started to discover all of these documentaries from an alternative perspective, things that I hadn't heard before. And they intrigued me enough that I started and started doing my own research, if only to say, well, that can't be true. That's yep. not real. And then I would look it up and I would see the actual document or I'd read the report for myself or I'd look at this article from The Guardian or whatever it was. And I'd say, oh, well, I, maybe that is true. OK, interesting. And it wasn't long before following that process, I fell down the proverbial rabbit hole and started encountering all sorts of information that just blew my mind. And this being the internet age, I thought to myself, what do I do with this? I This is clearly important information. Mm -hmm. I really want to get this out to other people. I'll start a website. I'll start a podcast. I had never, ever, ever had that thought or intention before in my life. But suddenly, there I was setting up a podcast. And this was years before Rogan or anyone else. Um, But it was partly just because of my situation in Japan and getting all of my English language media on the internet. So, of course, I was listening to podcasts and... I was, I was into this, you know, years and years and years and years ago. So luckily, I guess for my, for my own sake, I was on the leading edge of that wave uh, that swept over the shores of the internet in the past decade and a half. And so I, I just put it out there and it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew grew in ways that I never expected. And here I am today talking to you, wherever you are in the world, I don't even know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Tampa, Florida. So what, uh, yeah, yeah. It, the the time difference. What you're uh, like? What time is it there right now? In Japan, uh, it's currently nine in the morning pretty. Okay, yep seven seven p.m. here. So, but um yeah it uh for people that don't know, um you recently also you had amassed hundreds of thousands of followers on uh your YouTube page and millions of views and then just I think it was last year. They uh, permanently banned you, uh, correct, from YouTube, like for life, for being your videos being too dangerous in <laughs> in their thinking.
0: <laughs> Thought crime. Yeah. 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 Um, yes, I took a I was uh, foresightful enough to take a screenshot shortly before the uh, the channel went down just for posterity's sake. And yes, I believe YouTube was telling me it was 569,000 subscribers and something like 90 million video views at the point that they took down the channel. And it was a process that I, I I had seen this coming for years. If you look back in my archives, which, by the way, all of my videos were archived and are available from my website. You don't have to go through YouTube, but that's the way I imagine yeah. a lot of people found me. But um, in my archives, I mean, I have videos going back. Uh, six seven years saying you know the the revolution will not be youtube do not rely on youtube this is an information war my youtube channel is going to go down so it was fairly inevitable um I, I just find it kind of humorous that the video that was the third strike of the dreaded three strike system that they have was a video about the philosophy of science. <laughs> Basically, wow. just talking about yeah. philosophy and citing philosophers and all of this. But apparently, again, that's too dangerous in this day and age to yeah. talk about philosophy of science, because what do you mean? You're not just trusting the science. That's what yeah. we do with science, right? Anyway, I just found that funny humorous and ironic, Uh, but it's not unexpected to me at all that that's took place.
2: Yeah. And it's extremely troubling. And it, uh, what I'm trying to do with this, uh, podcast is to try to, you know, it's sort of like, uh, maybe they can stamp out one person, but then other, other forms, uh, you know, pop up to hopefully give, keep free speech and that dialogue going, because I'm just such a firm believer of, uh, you know i i haven't gone through all of your work i might not agree with your conclusions on some stuff but i i don't i'm saying i don't know so but the point is is we need more dialogue to figure out what's true and um or uh, yeah i ask you the next the kind of the the big picture question one thing i do want to say to the uh, audience is That is one of the things that I really admire about your work from what I've seen is you are extremely uh, fact-based. Like, I don't see you from anything I've seen, you're not taking a lot of you you've got some very interesting subject matter and some very interesting conclusions about some topics but you you cite everything you're giving resources you're giving a logical coherent explanation of how you came to those conclusions and um and and, and so that's like why i wanted to you know get people to hear your take on it the big uh picture question i was going to ask is could you, for our audience, give like sort of if you had to give an elevator pitch, 30 second pitch on what is different about the world than what they might think from the mainstream news? What is it, the James Corbett uh, kind of worldview that they need to uh, wake up to?
0: All right. So uh, my primary interest and my driving focus is how power operates in society. And this is the fundamental question because uh, the, the way that we answer that question will help us to understand the things that are happening in the world today. And if you have an incorrect answer to that question, I mean, I don't think... There's a singular, this is the answer and someone's going to get it right, bang on the button, especially someone like myself at the clearly the bottom of this power pyramid, however, it's really (laughs) operating, but we can be closer or further away from the real answer to that question. And the closer we are, the more likely we are to understand the way the world is really functioning and what is likely to happen. And I'm not just spouting that I can point to things in my archives that show that I had a, I, I, I think, demonstrably better understanding of the way power was operating in our society that shows, for example, when I was talking in 2009 about uh, the uh, the uh, medical martial law, uh, yeah. and I was talking about the types of pieces of legislation that were going into place and the, the types of research and experimentation and all of this coming together to put us into a situation like we are living in right now. And I was talking about that in 2009, back when that was crazy conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. forced mandated vaccinations, quarantines. What are you talking about, James? Well, I, the proof I- of the pudding is in the eating and we are eating that vile pudding right now. And I, I again, I think if we have an accurate map of the terrain, as in how does power operate, who is really in charge of this and what are they intending to do, then we can more accurately understand where we are and where we're going.
2: And is there, in your opinion, is that uh, power, is that a group? Is that an entity? How does this, I guess this goes into the questions like, in your opinion, uh, with the pandemic, uh, like, is it planned or orchestrated or like, and I will say my view to, to this point is sort of been, I agree with you of where things are going. I've kind of seen it almost as a su- systemic failure of the system rather than an orchestrated thing that's been planned out. But you obviously, like you just said, you've been kind of paying attention to this far longer than most people. So in your opinion, is this uh is this a plan or is it just sort of a failure of human nature and our systems that inevitably everything gets fucked up?
0: It is a plan. Um and that is exactly the plan that I was talking about and outlining thirteen years ago, let alone in the intervening thirteen years, talking about various iterations of this exact plan, the template that was put in place decades ago, um, so I, I do not see this as some sort of failure. In fact, quite the opposite. This is a win for the planners of the system that we are uh, experiencing right now. The types of international regulations, okay. like the international health regulations passed by the WHO, I believe that treaty was ratified in two thousand six. That. Invoked certain things like the public health emergency of international concern, the P-H-E-I-C, which is uh, the way that the World Health Organization in the last 15 years has been able to declare an international pandemic. And when they do so, it automatically activates certain contracts with big pharma manufacturers in uh, various uh, uh, locales for uh, mandated vaccinations and and uh, uh, purchases, I should say, of vaccines and other things along those lines. And again, I was pointing to all of this a long time ago. So. Um, If you're asking about the specifics of what is happening with the global health crisis at the moment, of course, I I don't talk about I don't I I, I at least try to be careful to stipulate when I'm speculating versus when I have actual factual information. And do I have some sort of signed on the dotted line? Yeah uh he, you know release the bioweapon for this of course i do not so yeah. i cannot definitively state what it did or did not take place and what is or is not happening but i can definitively state that the infrastructure for all of this yep. was laid out At the very least, over the past couple of decades, since specifically the anthrax attacks in the United States began the institutional process in the U.S. specifically for the laying out of various uh, 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 legislative responses, um, like the model state health Emergency Act, something along those lines. I can't remember the name of it, but it was this model uh, uh, health document that was circulated in the wake of the anthrax attacks and was then individually passed by state after state. I believe it was over 40 states the last time I looked at it had individually passed this that allowed, for example, governors to declare this type of health emergency, which allows them to um, issue quarantine orders and or forced vaccinations and other things along those lines. As I say, that is all. That was all there. That infrastructure was laid in place. And I see this as part and parcel, a continuation and a furtherance of the homeland security state that was set up in the wake of 9-11 to stop the dastardly bearded Muslim boogeymen. Um, I have always said that infrastructure for the homeland security state is not designed, It, it, it is not really primarily about keeping out the dastardly um uh, bearded turban boogeyman it is about uh suppressing dissent at home and that's yep. exactly what the patriot act was for and it was used for and all of the infrastructure for that homeland security state is now being furthered at any rate if not converted uh into the bio security state whereby yep. Now, it's not only you are a potential terrorist, and so we're going to have to screen you and look into, uh, you know, read your emails and whatever else. Now, it's you are a potential pathogen transmitter, an asymptomatic spreader, and it is biologically guilty till proven innocent. You're sick until proven healthy. And the only way to participate in society is if you get your green pass or whatever they call it in your particular locale that allows you to interact and transact like a normal human being. Um, this is to me is just a, a part and parcel of the homeland security state that went into place a long time ago and I think this is this to me is why this is not a failure of this system this is precisely what this system was designed and set up to do so regardless of whatever happened in Wuhan or didn't happen or mm-hmm. whatever however this started and whatever is spreading or not spreading, the infrastructure for this to me is is the important part of it because, Anything can be used as the trigger event, as long as you have all the pieces laid out on the table in the right way, it will go in the way that you um, want it to go, and that's exactly what I attempted to show. For example, with the World War One conspiracy, as you noted in that documentary, uh, yes, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand assassination was the trigger event for mm-hmm. World War One, but that wasn't the cause of World War One. That yep. wasn't the story. And once you know the story, then the assassination is just it, it's a detail but it yeah. wasn't it certainly wasn't important to that story
2: yeah it, it seems like a and and i've got a co-host for uh the podcast that occasionally we do kind of our deep dive discussions into the interview topics afterwards and we actually on one we just F-cat. Re- yep Fcat. <laughs> that's correct uh we, we got into, it hasn't been released yet, it'll probably be re- released tomorrow, a discussion where we kind of got into a debate if it is, uh, my opinion, kind of this uh, almost like game theory system uh, thing going on that creates these bad results. Whereas he's more in the, the camp of that it's a orchestrated, close-knit group of people doing it. And one thing that we came to a conclusion at the end of it, we didn't resolve that debate, but we came to the conclusion, which I totally it doesn't matter because whatever whatever the cause is there, it's quickly becoming uh, in the near future. It's going to be people that believe in some sort of individual liberty versus a state controlled uh, squashing of civil liberties and uh, government control of everything, and it really doesn't matter. I mean, it's interesting, it's fascinating to try and figure out how we got there, but it is uh probably quickly getting to be more important to figure out the solutions to fight against it rather than to definitively putting the pin in, you know, yeah, the and saying, uh, yeah, this person did this and set all of it in motion or whatever. So. So it, it, uh... I, I get I get exactly what
0: you're saying, and it's a similar sentiment to what I expressed, But the way that I would articulate it is to say that yes, I mean, of course, we do want to know, and we should want to know what did happen exactly and precisely, and to the extent that we can understand that, we should attempt to do so because that. Uh, at the very least, if we want justice for what is going on, then yeah. we need to know who did what and when and where and in yeah. what circumstances. So that is important, but also, of course, for the future so that we can prevent it from happening again. The more that we can know specifically about what did take place and who did what uh, the the more important it that will be for any potential solution going forward in the future. But what you're gesturing towards is something that i I like to try to remind people because i think people understand this to some extent but perhaps not there is of course the comic book cartoon version of conspiracy where it is literally a couple of people meeting in a smoky boardroom who literally decide everything that is taking place on the earth and everything goes according to their plan i don't subscribe to that version of conspiracy theorizing however Uh, I do think there are rich and powerful people who conspire to maintain their rich, their their wealth and their power. I mean, I and anyone who would dismiss that as unthinkable clearly has never studied history because that is, of course, the norm throughout all of human history. The rich and powerful, the oligarchical elite have always conspired with each other to try to. Maintain their power and fortune. And yes, they do war against each other. There are internal divisions within the oligarchy. I do not think it is a single homogenous unit. But I do think what we are dealing with is a battle of ideologies. And I think that's what you're gesturing towards. There is the yeah. ideology of those who perhaps, I mean, again, I don't even want to psychologize because what's the point i don't i don't see into the hearts and minds of men and i can't presume to know people's hidden motivations but perhaps they truly do believe the people in positions of power truly do believe that having a tightly highly centralized system of control where a few people in positions of power can decide who does and does not participate in society and in what way. A technocratic class that gets to decide such things Mm -hmm. and then mandate them into law that everyone must follow. Perhaps they really believe that is the best way to organize society and maybe the only way to organize such a highly developed and large population as as we have today. Uh, How else are you going to do it? How are you going to manage all of these people? But as opposed to that ideology is the ideology that I uh, try to remind people exists because often we don't even get taught about it. But the idea that, in fact, the greatest order comes not through top down managerial control of the human species, but through something called spontaneous order. Which is uh, something that's been talked about by economists and philosophers for quite a long time. I've even done a podcast episode on it. If people want to get more into the gritty details of it, but the essentially the idea is not only is it sort of uh, not only are managers inefficient and it's never going to be perfect, not not that it's that it is impossible to top-down manage society in the mm-hmm. way that people yeah. who want to a centrally planned society believe um, uh, it will be most efficient to do so. It's it's truly impossible. Uh, what... We need a, a a system in which everyone is able to interact and transact in the ways that they believe are best for their own interests because no manager of society knows what is best for everyone. No one can plan all of the things that are going on in the world in in the economy. Um, freedom is truly the answer. What's the question? And what that to me is the ideology that really is the polar opposite of the control oligarchical, centralized, we need a central system of power ideology, that to me is really the guiding principle of that oligarchical elite. There are different factions and different classes and they war with each other. There is a left and a right and they war with each other. But to the extent that they are authoritarian in mindset, they are on the same team. They may be fighting for who's going to be in charge of government, Inc., But they are on the same side of that uh, debate, whereas I think the true opposite side of that is the the fundamental position. No, humans are free to transact and interact in the ways that they voluntarily consent to without the use of aggression or force. Now, uh, now go and live your life as opposed to have have it micromanaged by some technocratic elite.
2: Yeah. And I, I would say that uh, I pretty much 100 percent agree with everything you just said. That is um, a, I think that's the reality as well as what's going on. There's even I think it was 2014 Princeton study that I'm sure you've probably uh, seen that even back in 2014 was talking about that America has moved from a democracy into an oligarchy that they looked at the actual impact of voters compared to special interests and the rich people on both sides of the political spectrum. And uh, average people have zero, basically, power already. So, I mean, everything you're saying makes perfect sense in the aspect that well well let me go 10 steps further so that we will have a point of disagreement because yeah
0: (laughs) because democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner democracy is (laughs) not a fundamentally moral system and it is not oh okay well 50 plus percent plus one of the population has decided that we all we need vaccine mandates in order to go shop at the stores. yeah No. no Uh, We have fundamental human rights that cannot be abrogated by anyone wearing any badge or any hat elected into any form of office. There is no special class of people who get to rule over other people, set special rules, make laws into existence. There is natural law. And then there is these man-made laws that um, people may, as I think the only Uh, actual moral basis for society is if people voluntarily consent to be ruled over by a certain system. So voluntarily consenting to say, okay, I agree. And I'm going to be in this democratic system or whatever else they they want to do so but i don't think any other human being gets has the right simply because you were born in this geographical location therefore you are a subject yeah. to this governmental system that you didn't set up and that you have next almost a, as close to zero control over as is humanly possible i would say <laughs> zero plus point zero 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 one percent you can move that dial no yeah. no i didn't consent to this i don't agree to it yeah. and you you do not have the right to do that to me um so that is my position and if that smacks of anarchism oh well Well, <laughs> yes that's, I, yeah. I think honestly d- democracy is not is not a moral system
2: could it could um since the conversation's already gone there i was actually going to ask you about this because from things you've said before you seem to be, um, yeah, quite a scholar on uh, ideas of political philosophy and anarchism. Would you mind explaining? Because uh, lots of people, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do is think like in terms of the normie out there of the the way they understand things. Lots of people hear the term anarchism and just they think it's a bad word. Can you explain? What it go, which you are basically doing, but go into more detail or clarity about what political anarchism is a philosophy is. And then a follow-up yes, question absolutely, gladly. would be, is it viable?
0: Mm, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Very good question. Yeah. So the first question, if people want the the more detailed deep dive. I did do an interview um, where I did explain this in a lot of detail before. It's on my website. I believe it's under some sort of title like the Anarchist Ideologies. Perhaps just search okay. those terms on my site and you'll probably find that interview where I go through and talk about the history of this. I also had a <laughs> abandoned podcast that I started called uh, The Well-Read Anarch- Anarchist, where the intention was for me to go through and read through a number of works of anarchist literature in the past in philosophy and then discuss them. But <laughs> it turned out to be way, way more <laughs> bite than I could chew. So oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I haven't done that in a while, but there are, yeah. and if you just type anarchism into my search bar, you'll find a number of things I've done in the past. But I, I think uh, the obviously the first thing that will pop into most of the general public's minds when they hear anarchy is chaos, disorder, violence, yep. looting, burning, pillaging fires on the street. Um, that is the association with anarchism. And to a certain extent, I at least understand where that derives from, because in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, there was uh, uh, there was uh, uh, some something called the propaganda of the deed, which was a. a um, an ideological idea that was being bandied about in certain anarchist philosophical circles at the time that in order to move things along, we're going to have to do spectacular things. And so there were a number of assassinations and bombings and things that were going on at that time in the name of anarchism. And so that became associated with violence disorder, Mm -hmm. trying to go out and kill people. Now that's unfortunate because in fact, there's a much obviously much more detailed, much deeper history to the ideas of anarchism. And it really did start as very clearly a left ideology, very much of the the far left, even further than the communists to, to some extent, um, and developed in various ways, and now you've got anarcho-capitalism in the United States, which is very perceived as very far-right ideology. And so, what is it? Is it left? Is it right? Uh, essentially, if we go to the actual denotation of the term rather than the connotation, like conspiracy theorist, yeah. of course, just means crazy person, yeah. right? <laughs> or does it mean someone who is theorizing about a conspiracy? Well, anarchism just means violence and looting and robbing. No, no. no. What does it actually mean? Yeah. And archie as in no ruler. And so the idea is that there is no one who is in a position to rule over another human being and th- that all uh, authority, top-down authority, is illegitimate. And uh, so starting from that, you can you can go in many different directions with it, which is why I talk about the anarchist ideologies, because you'll notice there are a million flavors of anarchism. There's Mm -hmm. anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-communism and anarcho-capitalism and uh, uh, anarcho-primitivism. And uh, as I say, explore to your heart's content and find which flavor appeals to you the most. Um, My position actually comes from a position of uh, voluntarism which is the idea that go go live in anarcho-primitivist, uh, Stan. Go live in anarcho-communist land. Go live in anarcho-capital world, whatever. Yeah. Go, go find your flavor. As long as you voluntarily consent to whatever community you are joining, then that's morally permissible. And the only thing that is morally impermissible would be for someone to say, no, 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 you don't get a choice. I get to rule over you given these terms that I've decided or that we've decided, or in whatever form of legitimization, oh, you know, 99 people around you yeah. voted on this, and they all voted for it, so now we ruled over you. That, to me, is the illegitimate side of it, um, so, which, uh, in some to some degree, is, I, I think, where people get hung up, because then the idea is, well, then what prescriptively do you do? I mean, if it's just, if yeah. you can... If you can do anything, then what do you do? And the the point is, I don't think that any one way is the right way for everyone to live. I think different communities can choose to live in different ways. And the temptation is to say, let the best community win. But it's not a competition in that sense. What does win even mean? Some people will thrive in this form of community. Some people will thrive in that form of community. Let them choose. Rather than have their lives dictated to them because they happened to be born on a certain patch of land that is claimed uh, the jurisdiction of this or that government that came into existence before they were even born. That to me is insanity. And if we step outside of that system and try to look at it from the outside, I think we can recognize that there's something inherently strange about the system that we've been born yeah. into and have simply taken for granted all their lives. Now, you ask the other important question, the viability of this which is an extremely important question, because yes, I mean, morally ideal, what is the best thing that we can imagine versus what can we actually accomplish? And even more importantly, how do we get there? Do I think it is possible? I mean, can I imagine a universe without contradiction in which we do have some sort of voluntarist society? Certainly, yes, I do. But how do you get there? (laughs) That's the extremely difficult part of it. And for me, that is at the very most hopeful, that is a generational process um, yeah. of getting people off of the system, the, the mindset of the systems of control that they have been steeped in their whole life and tr- and, and bringing up a generation in the, the mindset of voluntary interaction with others. Not that you do this because your teacher said you do this because your parent said for you to do this. You do this because the police officer said that you do this. No. What, what do we form when we start to recognize that other human beings are sovereign individuals? I'm a sovereign individual. We get to choose and interact and I can persuade you to do this or persuade you not to do this. The only thing I can stop you from doing Physically stop you from doing is violently aggressing against myself, yep. or if someone delegates that to me against someone else. So that and once we have that mindset, then we can start the really figuring out what voluntarist world looks like. Um, That isn't something that obviously we are in a state for, a state uh, to be able to handle right now. And I have a questions for Corbett, the podcast series that I do. I have one back way back in my archives. Something it was the question was something like, you know, if you had the magic button or the magic switch and you could flip it Mm -hmm. into anarchism overnight, would you do so? And my answer was No, absolutely, emphatically, no, I would not flip that switch right now, everything else being as it is, because I think that would devolve into the type of chaos that people associate with anarchism, precisely because it has to be a staged process of people moving towards and understanding what voluntary interaction is and what it looks like. Do I have the roadmap of exactly how to get us from here to there? I certainly do not. I do not claim to have that roadmap. But I do know I I'm I'm the thinker, the visionary. I know what what the end goal looks like and I can imagine ways that we can proceed towards it. And that's what I'm attempting to do with uh, with at least one aspect of my work.
2: Yeah, well, this is what is so frightening about this current uh, movement to stop free speech, to stop, to ban people from you speaking like you speaking, anyone speaking Because everything you just spoke about is about a society based on persuasion, which, as soon as you rip free speech out of that, that's gone completely. And so this, uh, there are so many different uh, topics I kind of wanted to get your take on, but um, we're not going to have time to get into all of them. But this <laughs> is probably a good segue to uh, ask you about, because I believe you were doing a, uh, a course on the history of media on uh, on, uh, on uh, Thaddeus Russell's uh, university. I've forgotten the, the uh, Renegade University. Renegade University, yep. yeah. And um so I was going to ask you in this uh, what we've currently got going on with a uh, clamping down on free speech and propaganda more and more becoming the norm on both the right and the left um like what a could you just kind of give like a, a take your take on how bad this is getting historically compared to what has taken place in the past and then how do people circumvent that how do people both from thinking and functional steps to take how do you increase uh, get away from the propaganda increase your own thinking and dialogue on different ideas
0: Yes, good question, and I think you framed it in the right way, because if we understand it in its historical context, we have a better understanding of what it is that we are in the process of losing right now and how important it is for us to preserve what we have right now, the relative freedoms that we enjoy, um, historically speaking, are actually rather immense. Uh, And uh, there are many places uh, around the world in which, even today, Um, simply speaking out about the government in a negative way is a good sign you're going to be sent to the gulag or the equivalent thereof. And uh, of course, gulags and other things have really existed in the past and they really could exist in the future, in our very near future. So we have to understand the gravity of this. And the best way to do that is to understand how um, censorship has happened in the past and what that looked like and the form that it took in different societies. So in my history of mass media course that I did, as you say, for Renegade University. And I will be expanding on this year um, with some more work that I'll be doing to flesh it out for my audience. But the idea is that um, certainly with the invention of the printing press uh, back in the 15th century, you start to see the ways that various locales start to crack down on the printing press, because suddenly, there's there's this proliferation of ideas and discourse and people communicating with each other even across vast distances and all, there's this huge cultural shift that's taking place i think directly attributable to the technology that uh, came into existence at that time and so you start to see Kings and other people in positions of power trying to crack down on the printing press. And that takes different forms in different places. But for example, in the 17th century in England, you have the parliament after the star chambers and all of that. And they they ultimately abolish that because we don't want the king to have all that power. But we'll take it for ourselves. So immediately after abolishing the Star Chambers, the Parliament uh, starts their own licensing act for the printing press. And you have to have be, be a licensed printer and you can only print things that are essentially approved by the Parliament or their, their appointees. So you start to have this incredible censorship that goes into place. And that's when John Milton writes the Areopagitica, which is to this day still seen as one of the most important works in the English language about the importance of freedom of speech. So people should uh, start maybe start there if you want to start exploring this issue and what it means in its historical context. But in America... Um, You had this, uh, certainly in the colonies in the late 18th century, you had this incredible combination of things. You had not only the printing press, the flowering of it, the the relative availability of the printing press technology to the general public, Um, newsletters and pamphlets and things were being printed willy-nilly and everyone had their say. And you had an incredibly literate society. Almost Almost everyone read and read deeply and widely. And as a result of that, pamphlets could be extremely influential and could really change people's political perceptions, like one that was published in January of 1776 called Common Sense, which yep. many people will point to as perhaps the turning point in the American psyche from this is a civil war kind of dispute that we're having in within the British Empire ab- about uh, the way the British Empire is rolling, ruling over this part of the British Empire into oh, no, this is a war of independence and we are going to declare our independence. We are going to be something different. And that took place because of the availability of the printing press, the availability of that technology and the the readiness and reception of that. And common sense immediately became not just a bestseller, but became so pervasive and widespread that I, I can't remember the numbers, but if you put it in context to the population of today and put the numbers of people who read Common Sense into today's figures, it would be something something like the 24th most read, uh, most uh, uh, purchased book in the world or something like wow. that. Like it, it was huge. It was massive. Its effect was massive. So, of course, people in positions of power well, just serving their own self-interest should be afraid of this power of free speech and the media. So put that in today's perspective and just go back a couple of decades to when the internet and World Wide Web was a relatively new phenomenon and what's going on here and people are trying to get their bearings and you still hear people saying, where did you read that? On the internet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> As if it was some you know foreign strange land. Uh, Remember that? I certainly do, because that was the context in which I started my website. And at that time, as I say, I started getting into YouTube and Google Video and other things like that that were around at, at that time. And you'll remember that in 2006, Time Magazine made you... The person of the year. Yes, you, everyone (laughs) who's listening to our conversation can go around and say, yes, I was Time person of the year in 2006. And you can hold up the cover of Time Magazine, which was a computer screen with the YouTube uh, play bar and like a mirrored image. So you can see yourself in there because you are the person of the year. YouTube, it's this flowering of this new way of getting, it's the modern version of the printing press, right? Everyone has access to this and they can get their word out. But- at that time, there was, uh, I, I, I went through this actually in my, I, I just got censored from YouTube video that I posted last year when they took down my channel, Um, of an episode I called Few. And I went through Um, the editor-in-chief of Time at that time. I believe his name is Richard Stengel. And at that time, he was writing about this new online revolution and YouTube and things the, the, that people are using to get their word out there. And he was writing about, well, some people might worry that this is amateur hour and they might worry about the implications of everyone having a voice. But I think if everybody puts their voice out there, this is the spirit on which America was founded and blah, blah, blah. Fast forward to 2022, any guesses where Richard Stengel is and what he's doing these days? He's one of these people going, oh my God, everybody has a voice and it's terrible and there's so much misinformation and we need government censorship to come in and save the day. Uh, he's literally writing books about this. So um, it's, it's inevitable. People in positions of power tower in fear at the ability of the general public to be able to to talk to each other and to communicate with each other and to share their own ideas because inevitably that is anathema to centralization of power and control. Our power is our ability to talk and persuade each other and share ideas and information and understanding and grow spontaneously uh, under the heels of whatever oligarchical figures claim to be ruling over us. And that is exactly, precisely why we see the censorship really starting to happen in earnest right now on all of the controlled platforms. Luckily, there are many, many, many platforms out there that are not so similarly or so blatantly controlled at any rate, at least not at this point, and which still offer some modicum of free speech and free communication, even the naughty crime yep. think ideas that you're not supposed to say, like, uh, I don't know, philosophy of science and whatever else. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, there are ways around it, but the, it's really an arms race at this point in terms of people's Ability to understand the gravity of the situation we're in and the fact that other places do exist. You do not have to go to YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and whatever else. There are many, many other options out there. And if we don't recognize that right now and start to take advantage of those other options, we are going to lose one of the most important tools that we have to resist oppression.
2: Yep. Yeah. I think that is, uh, yeah, uh incredibly accurate and i I hope people wake up to that concept of that it we should all be fighting against the centralization of power amongst any group whoever it is and uh, fighting for individual liberty there's uh one last question which I am probably going to you're probably gonna run out of time uh and not be able to give uh. Uh, A full answer to but i just wanted to get your take on um if you could um which do you think is a bigger danger in the united states right now us falling into a left-leaning socialist technocratic elite government control of everything squashing uh free speech you know techno control of everything or Is it a backlash to that sort of populist uh, dictator, authoritarian, Mussolini type rising up and riding that wave and people cheering as they give him dictator status?
0: You know, that's a very, very perceptive question, and I like the way you frame it. So as a Canadian in Japan who has spent a grand total of maybe, I don't know, seven days of my life in the United States, I'm not going to presume to be able to (laughs) dictate what's going to happen there or know the psyche of the American people so intimately. I do obviously look at a lot of American news and talk to a lot of Americans, but uh, m- you know, maybe I don't have my finger on the pulse. But I think the way that you frame that question is the right way to frame it, because I think the dual danger exists. The danger exists from both sides of that pincher. And one side, yes, is the, the, the left totalitarian, yep. a technocratic, we will crush the, the right and we will get them. And then the other side of that is the, the right, the populist, whatever, Trumpian, mega, don't worry, guys, the military coup is coming and then they'll install yeah. Trump in, in president for life. Yay. And I see both of those as the pincher by which the population is squeezed. And as I was saying before, there is a left and a right and they do war with each other but they're both on the authoritarian side of the line. Yep, exactly, and the real yeah. opposition to that is on the libertarian, small l side yep. of that line. And uh, that to me is the real excluded part of the political conversation because everyone talks about left and right, but the left and right are propping each other up. And that becomes the stable base upon which the oligarchy can invest.
2: And, and with the media propaganda- being so defined in the U S to both sides, it completely supports that where nobody can have a, a discussion that goes in between those two
0: or yeah, the, the other direction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So that, yeah. that to me, I think they're both possibilities and which way will it go and in what way I don't have the crystal ball. But I, I think, and if we exclude the, the real, divide here, which is authoritarian versus freedom. If we don't understand that divide, then we're going to get suckered into supporting one or another side of the wrong, the the opposing team's ideas, essentially.
2: Well, James, I know you are pressed for time and I don't want to keep you too long. So the last thing I would say is that I would encourage everyone to go to the CorbettReport.com because that is where all of your work is, and if you want to start kind of breaking out of those two uh, right versus left propaganda machines and start actually thinking for yourself, considering ideas like James is talking about, that is a fantastic place to start. I would love to have you back on sometime to go more into depth. Like I told you, I'm fascinated about the the aspect of uh, World War One and kind of where the modern dynamics started geopolitically. So I'd love to talk to you about more, more, more of that in depth sometime. But um, thank you very much for coming on the show. This is uh, very enlightening. You're welcome. Yeah. Yep. Happy to do it.
0: Uh, Let me know when you want to talk again.
1: Thanks for listening to the Independent Riot Podcast. Your home for free thinkers, independent believers, and radicals questioning the status quo. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did... Please do us a huge favor and leave a quick positive review on whatever platform you're using. It's free to you and super easy to leave us a good ranking and really help spread the word about the podcast to other independent thinking folks. Thanks for listening and please go ahead and subscribe so we can be sure to see you next time.